Good morning. It's good to be with you all again. Um, my family looks forward to coming here. Uh, my kids think of coming to Mount Vernon, Indiana as vacation. So. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we do praise you for the cross of Christ, for purchasing our salvation, for buying sinners like us there. And we praise you, Father, that the, the cross and the tomb are both empty and that Christ has ascended and taken his seat at your right hand. So we ask now for you to, to lift up our eyes to where Christ is. Uh, we confess that the eyes of our hearts are, are often pulled downward and we, for, we just forget you. And we know that life in our world, in this world that you've made, can be complex and confusing and that apart from you, it would be totally hopeless. But we want our lives to, to be lived faithfully while you give us breath, Lord. So we ask that you would now give us wisdom from your word, wisdom to navigate life's realities and to steward our lives well. And we pray that you would give us each an ability to hear what you want to say to us, and we ask that you would speak, rid us of all distractions so that we might hear. In Jesus' name, amen. If you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, you might know that he was uh, one of God's instruments in bringing about the first great awakening. Maybe you've heard of his sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But there's something else that he wrote that has been very influential, and it's his 70 resolutions. These were commitments that he wrote that he started as a young man. I, I want to say even as like a 19-year-old, he started writing these resolutions, and then he kept adding to them throughout his life. So I want to share some of these resolutions with you, but as you hear them, I want you to think about the kind of world that Jonathan Edwards lived in. He lived in the first half of the 1700s. Uh, he did not enjoy many of the comforts and conveniences that we do now. Life was just physically more difficult, and death was everywhere. The life expectancy in this time period was about 40. That number, I think, is uh, informed largely by the rate of infant mortality. But imagine that, the life expectancy being 40, and death in general was just ever-present. So with that kind of setting in mind, listen to a few of these resolutions from Jonathan Edwards. His resolution number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. And number 52, this one has a, a bit of an introduction. He says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolved that I will live as I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. Now, our world is so sanitized, and we tend to push, push death to the corners and to medical facilities where we don't have to look at it or think about it. 
But that wasn't the case in Edward's world. Death was, death was everywhere. And I wonder if that reality of death uh, gave him a kind of focus on the life that he should live. I mean, if nothing else, his resolutions tell us that he thought about his death more than most young people do now. And this, this awareness of mortality is something that we would all do well, I think, to emulate. And nowhere is this uh, sentiment articulated in Scripture quite like it is in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. The book of Ecclesiastes comes, it's kind of right in the middle, it's right after Psalms and after Proverbs, but before you get to the prophets. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the first 12 verses. And my hope is that we come away from this passage with a greater awareness of our own mortality. I don't want you to leave here feeling like you just attended your own funeral. Um, But I do hope that we are chastened to, as Edwards put it, live with all our might while we do live. And before we get into our passage, into these 12 verses, I just want to to note a few things about the book of Ecclesiastes to get us into this world. This book has kind of a reputation for being skeptical and taking a negative view on life. Uh, because of its refrain of all is vanity and all is a va- life is a vapor. But I think that's actually a, that's a misreading and a misunderstanding of Ecclesiastes. Because what Solomon does is he takes us through his observations of life and his attempts to explain it, and then he shares with us his frustrations in those attempts to explain it. So he describes his pursuit of pleasure, his pursuit of fame and of wisdom, and he shares his observations of work and oppression and inequality, and all of these things lead him to conclude that life is a vapor, all is vanity. But they also lead him to conclude throughout the book that there is nothing better for us than to enjoy the life God gave to us. So that's one thing. Another important part of this book is that Solomon limits his comments, most of his comments, to life as we experience it. There are times where, if you read Ecclesiastes, where you might want him to say something more, to be a little more explicit about the grand purposes of God. But Solomon is writing about life under the sun. If you've read Ecclesiastes, I bet you're familiar with that that phrase. He's writing about life under the sun, He uses that phrase actually five times in our passage. He knows that there's something and someone above the sun. He knows that this world isn't all there is. But that's not what he's writing about in most of this book. He's writing about life as we know it and as we experience it. And in our passage, he brings together a few of these themes from the book. So if you like to take notes, um, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to see what he has to say about life's certainties. So verses 1 through 6 will be life's certainties. And then verses 7 through 10, we'll see what he says about life's joys. And then 11 through 12, about life's end. So life's certainties, life's joys, and life's end. So first, life's certainties, starting in verse 1. He says, But all this I laid to heart, 
examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. So we begin with an acknowledgement that God is there. And all the deeds of his people, his people here are the righteous and the wise, he says, are in his hand. He sees what they do, their deeds are in his hand, and he cares for them. They themselves are in his hand. So right off the bat, in this book that we think of as skeptical and pessimistic, there's reason to be hopeful. God and nobody else has you and your deeds in his hand. This is a certainty. But he follows it up with an interesting line. Whether it's love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. What he means is that if you are one of God's people, he has you in his hand, but we don't know what the future is going to bring. Now, I remember reading a J.I. Packer somewhere say that belonging to God doesn't mean that he brings you into the control room of his purposes. He doesn't open up some secret box where you get all the answers and you see the future. Whether it is love or hate, Solomon says. It's just another way of saying whether, whether it's good or evil that waits for us. We don't know. Both things are before us. And Solomon's going to make this more clear as he goes, but what he's saying is that being righteous and being wise does not guarantee a happy and clear future. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? He goes on. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So our deeds are in God's hand, but we don't know what awaits us. And it's the same for all people. I think this passage is a good reminder for all of us that we cannot, must not, embrace any kind of prosperity gospel. Uh, We cannot embrace the idea that if you just believe hard enough and love God enough, that good things will come in this life. No. God does what He pleases, and we don't know what's going to come. And from our perspective, here under the sun, it sure doesn't look like God's providence always favors His people, right? He, Solomon says, the same event happens to all. And this list here in verse 2 just contrasts the good and the bad, the, the wicked and the, the good. He says, the righteous and the wicked, the good and evil, the clean and unclean, the one who wants to sacrifice and who, one who doesn't, the good, the sinner, the one who swears an oath, and the one who would rather not. The same event happens to them all. And he says, this is an evil that happens under the sun. And the evidence of this is just everywhere. We could open this up for an open forum for evidence of how, how the same event happens to the good and the wicked. I mean, why is it that just a couple of years ago, Nabil Qureshi dies at the age of 34? He was a Christian author and apologist. He grew up in a Muslim family. He came to believe the gospel, 
and then devoted his life to trying to get other people to follow the same path, trying to reach out to other Muslims to call them to Jesus. This was a faithful man with a really fruitful ministry. He had a wife and a daughter. So why is it that he dies at the age of 34 and someone like Hugh Hefner, the embodiment of so much wickedness, lives to old age? Being good and being clean and being wise does not protect you from harm in this life. And being wicked and evil and unwise doesn't guarantee repayment in this life under the sun. The same happens to all, and this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. When a tsunami strikes an island, it's not just the wicked people who die. It is not only the fools who inexplicably lose their jobs. This is what happens in a fallen world. And not only that, it gets worse, he says. If we go on in the passage. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Well, isn't that just heartwarming? You could put that on the next birthday card you write. Uh, There's evil around you, there's evil within you, and then you die. Happy birthday. But that is a certainty, isn't it? That we will all die. Even God's people, the righteous and the wise, as he calls them. They have madness in their hearts. If you've ever read Romans 7, Paul says, the good I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Even God's people still have evil and madness in their hearts. But he says in verse 4, he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. So even though life is unpredictable and can be dark, there's hope while we live. Better to be a living dog than a dead lion. And remember, a dog at this point was not exactly man's best friend. It was a dirty scavenger. But still, better to be a dog living than a majestic lion who's dead. Why does he say that? He tells us in verse 5. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. When when you're alive, you know you're going to die. And knowing you will die should, should urge us to live accordingly like it did for Jonathan Edwards. It should urge us to resolve to live with all our might while we do live. And he says, the living know this, the dead do not. And when he says that the dead know nothing, he's not denying that there's an afterlife. I mean, he says earlier in the book that God has put eternity into our hearts. He knows eternity exists. But from the perspective of life under the sun, death is final. And this is certainly how we experience it, isn't it? When people die, they are gone from us. We know they haven't ceased to exist, but they are gone from us. They know nothing of life anymore. They have no more reward to live for, and they are forgotten. And then verse 6, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, 
and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So the person is gone, and all that they cared about, their love and their hate and their envy, goes with them. They have no more share in this life. So these are some of life's certainties. God knows the big picture. We don't know how our lives are going to play out, and we will die and be forgotten. So you could read this and despair. You could despair that this is the path for all of us, to die and be forgotten. I mean, think about how many people die and how many people are remembered past one generation. And we could barely name all the presidents of our country, much less think of all the people who have died. We are forgotten. Or you could read this and respond the way I think we should, and that's with a sober hope. Hope because there is life to be lived, and sober because you will die and be forgotten. I will die and be forgotten. And he says, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. This is a great evil, and then we die. So these things are certain. How should this influence us? How should, this, how should we respond to this? Well, there are countless ways it should influence us. And Solomon actually spends the next few verses getting into that. But look again at verse 6, if you would. Verse 6 says, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that's done under the sun. So think with me for a minute. Think about the things that you worry about, the things that, that you spend your mental and emotional energy on. I don't mean the legitimate things that should concern you, like your family and paying bills and those kind of things. I mean the petty stuff. I bet we all spend too much time and energy caring about what other people think about us. Maybe you've got a tense work relationship that dominates your thoughts. Maybe a sports team claims too much of your affections. Or maybe you keep track of the way that people wrong you, and you keep a tally in your mind. Try to think of something like that, something small that's earned your love or your hatred or your envy. And now, think about the fact that you will die. And with you will go all the energy that you wasted on all that stuff. Your love and your hate and your envy dies with you, Solomon says. And if there are things that won't matter to us in our final days, why do we let them so dominate our thoughts and our energy now? Life will eventually bring us real problems, and those things will require our attention and energy. But life is just too short to lose sleep over petty things that won't, mu- that won't matter much past this week, much less on our deathbed. The reality of death is a great reminder of what matters and what doesn't matter. So instead of letting self-centered and insignificant things dominate your attention, love other people, celebrate other people, Take delight in other people that you live life with. That is a far better way to to use the days God gives you than to concern yourself with petty things. So Solomon moves from life's certainties to life's joys in verses 7 through 10. 
And these verses actually function as some of Solomon's own application of what he just said. He said, you'll die and be forgotten, so what should you do? Verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your grape juice. Kidding, it says wine, with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So that's how he says you should respond. Eat, drink, and be merry. But it's not just eat for food's sake and drink for wine's sake. But it's all done with a recognition that God has supplied the gift. God's given us food and drink, so enjoy them. He approves, he says, of your eating and drinking, assuming you eat and drink with gratitude. So this isn't just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's eat, drink, and be merry, for God is good. That's Solomon's first application. And verse 8 gives us the next one. Verse 8 says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. What is he talking about here? Well, think about in the Old Testament, when people were grieving, what did they put on to convey their grief? Sackcloth and ashes, right? dark and dirty. He's saying, let your garments be white and let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments are nice and light and oil refreshes the skin. They convey joy and happiness. So again, there are times when sackcloth and ashes are what you must put on, but if you have reason for joy, then it's okay to look like it. You're going to die and be forgotten, so clean up and get dressed, is what Solomon says. Next application in verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. If you have a wife, enjoy her. If you have a husband, enjoy him. If you're not married, enjoy the people you live your life with. All the days of your vain vapor of a life. Why? Well, he tells us. Because that is your portion. That is the life God has given to you. And he doesn't tell us, husbands, to put up with your wife or endure her presence. He says, enjoy her. Cherish her. Make time for each other. Your days are numbered. Your spouse's days are numbered. So enjoy one another while you have one another. You don't want to end your life and have all these fresh memories of the way you were short with your wife, the way you made her life difficult and a pain. Enjoy your wife and make it easy for her to enjoy you. I remember a couple of months before Anna and I got married, we were with her family, and I was talking to her grandfather. He's just a really good man. And at that point, he was, I think, in his late 70s, and his marriage was at least past year 50. And he gave me a piece of advice that I have not forgotten, and he said, make sure you enjoy it. And that was it. Now, if a 20-year-old tells you to enjoy it, you, th- you say, 
Thanks for that meaningless advice. If a man who's been married for 50 years tells you to enjoy it, to make sure you enjoy it, it comes with some weight and some gravity. And he had told me that he, he had wished that he had learned earlier to enjoy his more. <clears throat> and I think that is good Solomon-like advice, to enjoy the life God has given to you. So from food and clothing and marriage, he broadens it out in verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So whatever you do in your life, do it with all your might. Life is too short for coasting. So whether you eat or drink, whatever your hand finds to do, do it to the glory of God. That's the message here. Eventually, your work in this life, your thought, your knowledge, your wisdom, it's all going to end up in Sheol with you. And she, just side note, Sheol here, it's just the, it's the realm of the dead. So for Solomon to refer to Sheol isn't to say heaven or hell. It just means you're not alive. After you live, Sheol. When you die, all the pursuits of your life will be gone. So he says, do it with your might while you can. And, you know, I don't think it can be a coincidence that much of what's described here sounds like a wedding. You have food, you have wine, you have white garments, you have joy, you have marriage being referenced. And why would that be the case? Why would Solomon do this? I think it's because, in the words of uh, David Gibson, the best that life can offer is simply a foretaste of a wedding banquet to come. There will be a banquet where we will eat and drink with the Messiah himself. And we'll finally meet and feel the fullness of the joy that we get glimpses of here in this life. You know, Solomon says that God has put eternity into our hearts earlier. And one way we sense this is in the joys of life. Right? The, the simple joys of eating a good meal, of satisfying work, of having someone to love. And all these things, he says, are foretastes, they're appetizers of the coming feast that we'll enjoy with the Lord himself. When those joys won't end the way they do now, when they won't be tinged with sadness the way that they are now. But until then, it honors God to enjoy the things that he gives to us. And I think, I think we can all understand this, right? Think of giving a gift to a child. What do you want to happen with that gift? If you give a child a book, what do you want to see happen? You want to see him read it. And it gives you joy to see him read it. If you give a kid Legos, you want to see him build something with it. And it gives you some joy in seeing him use the gift that you gave him. It would be wrong to give a kid a bike and for him to say, you know, I'm going to sell this and use the proceeds for something more honorable than this. Yeah. No, <laughs> that does not honor the giver of the bike to do that. And I think that is what Solomon is telling us with our food and our drink. It honors the giver to enjoy the gift. 
He gave it to us. He already approves. And why, why does it honor God to enjoy the gifts he gives us? For one thing, it's an expression of gratitude. But for another, if you enjoy what you're eating, if you enjoy your spouse, if you enjoy your life, what are you not doing? You are not wishing you were eating something else. You are not wishing you were married to someone else. You are not wishing you had someone else's life. To enjoy the things that God gives to you is to cultivate contentment. So this is how you respond to the reality of death and evil. Enjoy the gifts God gives to you. You can be married and content, single and content, a widow and content, rich or poor and content, and joyful in all of it. And this is not just glib optimism, right? We read verses 1 through 6. This is not glib optimism. This is a sober, hopeful response to the reality of death. And this, this kind of enjoyment is only possible for people who know God. Maybe you're wondering, how does this, the call to enjoy life, how does it fit with the call to pick up my cross and follow Christ? Are those two at odds? I don't think they are. Because unless you pick up your cross and follow Christ, you cannot enjoy God's gifts. You can only enjoy the things that you don't worship. And if you haven't picked up your cross and followed Christ, you will be tempted to worship anything that's not Him. As soon as our enjoyment of something ascends to the point of worship, we ruin it, right? As soon as you put all your hopes in a thing that you should just enjoy, you ruin it. Only God can bear the weight of our worship. So we enjoy the people in our lives, we enjoy our work, and we live with joy to the glory of God. Why? Because God is good, and we might die tomorrow. So those are life's joys, and we will enjoy them until the realities of verses 11 and 12 come our way. We get to life's end. Verse 11 says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And we expect things to go a certain way. We expect the fastest person to win the race. We expect the strongest to win the battle, and so on. And most of the time, that's what happens, right? If you read Proverbs, Solomon gives us that message there, that there are these general patterns that are woven into creation. If you work hard, it usually brings reward. If you're lazy, it usually doesn't. Those things are generally, generally true, but not always. So, you know, there, there may be patterns in life, but there's no formula for making it work. He said, the same event happens to the good and the wicked. And so here he says, time and chance happen to them all. When he says time, he just means that eventually we're all going to bump up against the limits of time. When he says chance, again, from our perspective, he, you know, he knows God's in charge. We're all eventually forced to react to things that are just totally out of our control, that feel like chance. 
And the point here is that despite the optimism that we feel when we're young, and sometimes we get these messages that the world is our oyster and we are the master of our destinies, the point here is that that's just not the case. Verse 12, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Try as we might, we cannot keep ourselves from calamity any more than a fish or a bird. And that includes the final calamity that we will all face. In my, I think about this in my own life. You know, I, I try to exercise on like a semi-regular basis, not an obsession, but I try not to ignore it. And one motivating factor for me is that if you trace my family tree up two generations, just my parents and my grandparents, um, none of them are alive at this point. And there's only one of those six people who lived past 70, and three of them didn't make it to 60. So I recognize that I did not win the gene pool lottery. You know, so I try to maintain some, some decent health. But I also recognize that I don't know when my time is going to come. I mean, Psalm 139 says, In your book were written for me, every one of them, the days that you formed for me. God has ordained just how long my life is going to be. He knows the day of my death. And I can't extend it. An evil time will suddenly fall upon me. I mean, even, even my attempts to try to extend my life, I could go for a run and get hit by a drunk driver. And my very attempt to extend my life could, could bring about its end. The best we can do is try to be faithful with the life and days that we have. So how should we summarize these 12 verses? Well, Solomon is saying, you don't know how your life will unfold. You don't know how it will end. So enjoy the life you have while you have it. That is how you live in death's shadow. So if you're in Christ, if you're someone who has repented from your sin and put all your hope uh, in the Lord Jesus, then verse 1 describes you, and you can rest easy. The righteous are in God's hands. Even though you don't know how your life's going to play out, you have rock-solid promises. God is for you. He's going to finish what he started, and he will bring you to the golden shore. So you can trust God and enjoy your life and try to glorify him with it. If you are not in Christ, if you have not yet turned away from your sin and put your hope in him, then these verses ought to terrify you. Because you don't know when you will be like a fish caught in a net. And if you die apart from Christ, the Bible says you will die in your sins and you will face an eternal judgment in hell. But if you are hearing these words right now and you, are, you don't consider yourself a Christian, there is hope because you are not dead. And Solomon says it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. While you live, there is opportunity to make sure that your life isn't spent in vain. You don't know the day of your death, but the Apostle Paul says that today is the day of salvation. So if you would acknowledge that God is your maker, you have offended him with your sin, 
And if you put your faith in Christ alone to save you, you can ensure that the rest of your life and the rest of your eternity will not be spent in vain, but in glory. But if you have not done it, believe on the Lord Jesus. A few years ago, I read this great little book called When Breath Becomes Air. There's this memoir written by a, this man in his 30s who was a neurosurgeon, a brilliant guy, who was also a, a gifted writer. His name was Paul Kalanithi. And when he was 35, like I said, brilliant, I mean, on the top of his field, he received a terminal lung cancer diagnosis. This is a young man ascending. I mean, he just had the world in front of him. He's spending his life trying to cure incurable diseases. And then he gets married, has a young daughter, and receives a terminal diagnosis. And he died at age 37. And so this book is a, a really a mo- moving and poignant reflection on his own life, his pursuit of this high-level medicine, and then his own incurable cancer. And he says at one point in the book, I began to realize that coming in such close contact with my own mortality had changed both nothing and everything. He said, before my cancer was diagnosed, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. After the diagnosis, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. But now, I knew it acutely. And he says, the fact of, unset- the fact of death is unsettling, yet there is no other way to live. Well, I think Solomon would agree. If you, look, if you have your Bible open and you look back a page or two, at chapter 7, verse 2, Ecclesiastes 7, 2, Solomon writes there that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The house of mourning where you go to when someone dies. You see the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. A good funeral is good for the soul. A regular reminder of death, I think, can burn away the distractions and the petty things that consume too much of our lives. For the Christian, death can actually become a servant. It can become a help in the cause of holiness. Because it was our Savior, was it not, who tasted death for everyone and took away its sting. It was our Savior who destroyed death's power. And it was our Savior who entered death and came out the other side, victorious. We don't welcome death. We don't celebrate it. But we live in hope even as we face it because we face it in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, what a gift you've given to us by explaining our own lives to us in your word. What a gift it is to know that we are in your hand. And what a gift it is to be your people and enjoy your generosity. Father, we don't want to be ungrateful. 
We don't want to be naive, thinking that somehow we will escape life's difficulties. We know that all of us, maybe some of us already, will walk with a limp, and we will all bear scars. Father, don't let us be so foolish as to think that we can dictate our own lives. Use, Lord, the knowledge of eventual suffering and death to spur us to love you more with the days we have, to love the life you've given us for as long as we have it, and to use it all for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.